Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello, Disruptors, and welcome back to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We are currently celebrating Dental Hygiene Month, and we have an amazing, amazing interview lined up for you today. I am Melissa, your American dental hygienist. And I'm Tabitha, your Australian dental hygienist. And I'm really excited to introduce to you today, Kelsey Ingram, who is studying her PhD at the University of Newcastle. And she's studying the effects of oral health on chronic disease and the translation of this evidence into chronic disease and oral health policy in Australia. So she's a brainiac, but you know she's gonna share some of her information with us and we're very, very excited. Welcome, Kelsey. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I am an avid listener of the podcast, so it is really exciting to be here with you guys today and getting to discuss my research. And we're excited because this is a subject that Melissa and I are both really passionate about as well, and we're really interested to hear what you're finding so far and how it's all going. But can we start with Kelsey's just finished high school, and what made you decide on a dental degree? Well, my mom always worked as a dental receptionist and in dental clinics growing up. So it was an environment I was always in. And Me too. Oh, yes. Really? <laughs> yes, we're twinning right now. Yes, <laughs> what it's like. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so when I graduated, it was just a really natural progression into dental nursing. And um, it would probably be the same in some of the states, Melissa, but dental nursing in Canada, you have a lot of expanded skills. So you do things like place attraction cords and make temporary crowns and um, take impressions and all those kind of things. Um, so I really enjoyed that one-on-one -on -one care with the patient and just having a bit of that autonomy. Um, but I was young and I wanted to travel. So I spent some time in the UK and then I made my way to Australia and once I was here for about two years, I decided I did want to study hygiene. So originally I was planning to go back to Canada to do it. But in Canada, they said it would take about a year to get accepted. You had to do a series of exams and interviews, and then you'd be on a waiting list for two to three years before you even started. So at that point, I looked into studying in Australia. And it's funny because I really think that that decision shaped where I'm at today. And a lot of that is because of the dental public health system in Australia, because Canada doesn't have one. And that really shaped, um, I guess, my decisions and where I went with my career. Um, so once I graduated, I worked across private, um, public and specialist clinics. And like I said, my time in public health really um, impacted me. And it was just seeing firsthand the need among patients accessing public dental services, but also the limitations of public health to provide care due to waiting lists and resources. And it really just put me on this path to discover the gaps. And when I started investigating it, I was coming across statements like policy is an effective way of instigating change, yet oral health policy is an area of failure in Australia. So when you look at those two statements, there has to be something missing. 
So that's where I um, I started with a master's and then upgraded to a PhD, where I'm currently investigating the implementation of oral health research, which is relating poor oral health to chronic disease into Australian health policy. And so did you do a master's in public health? Is that what you did your master's in? No. So I actually started a master's by research in the same topic and then I upgraded. So I confirmed and then moved up to a PhD. Yes, your research is like everything to me, like literally everything. Because when I first became became a hygienist, I didn't get the connection. But then like, you know, five, six years in, I was like, hmm, it would make sense that this is connected. But we didn't really have a lot of the evidence to say it actually was. It's like we assume it is, but now we're here, right? And that body of evidence just keeps on growing. So girl, I wish I could be studying with you because I would just be like, yes, look here. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of doing it on my own without getting a PhD because <laughs> I just like, I'm such a big nerd and I just read this stuff and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But I, I hats off to you for like seeing the issue and then going after it and like doing the work to help repair it. So I, I think it's amazing. It's such important work that you're doing and thank you so much for doing it. Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that. I think the other thing is too, though, is like don't discount the roles that, you know, everybody plays in this situation. And I mean, a PhD is great to influence and um, drive some aspects of it. But the other sides of it too is we're trying to change the system, which in dental, with that dental sits within, right? So that's going to take everyone. That's going to take clinicians, policymakers, government, medical professionals, and everyone working together. And I really love what um, you both do with the CPD courses and the Level Up um, preventative courses because that's resourcing clinicians. And I think sometimes clinicians feel like they know it, but until you actually get that stuff that you can grab onto and apply in clinical practice, it's really hard to... Um, sometimes implement that and educate patients. And so I think what you guys are doing is so important in this area as well. So something that we talk about a lot on the podcast with lots of different guests is why did dental end up separate to medical? Like, you know, and we didn't end up just a little bit separate. We got like locked in the basement. (laughs) Like go over there, shut the door, never come out again. What, what, What have you kind of maybe seen through your research as why this has happened and why we haven't been integrated into that medical model as much? Yeah, that that's a big question and I'm sure there's lots of aspects to it. One aspect of it, though, that I think drives it is the privatization of dental services and so in a lot of countries um, I know I don't think it's not the same in the states but in a lot of countries you can access public health care um, and I know in Australia we have a public dental system but um, the waiting lists are long and it's maybe not as effective as it could be and then you look at countries like Canada where there's no dental health system at all um, and so I I think from my research, the privatization of healthcare, not including oral health, has been a large part of that. Um, and I know there's a push for um, a universal oral healthcare system, which I think would help to break that. Um, but how far along that is, I don't, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I think- interesting because there's a lot of stuff going on in the states at the moment, Melissa, with um, Medicare and dental. And I know the ADA um, were very against it correct it, from what I, I you know I'm only reading online so I'm just saying yeah 
I haven't dug too deep into it myself. I've kind of read superficial things as well. But the gist of what I'm seeing is that they don't want it to be part of Medicare because their reimbursement rates are going to go down significantly. So it's, it's again, yes, they're running businesses. And yes, we need to have a healthy business to survive. But, um, you know, we're, we're not, it's, it's kind of like the public health version of what you're talking about. Like we don't really have, uh, that's the closest thing that we would have to a public dental program would be something like Medicare, Medicaid, um, but they're awful at reimbursement and that's known you know it's it's not good quality care and it's not that the payouts are very bad for the care so it's like it the system is broken because there's no way for underserved populations to receive the proper care because it's the reimbursement rate is so low that it's the quality can't back it up that it's just not possible so and, and some of the things that i hear too like in other uh public kind of uh dental systems it's just, there's no way that it's not set up for success. And we know how important oral health is to total body health. So it's like, you know, we're over here screaming, hey, don't forget about us because it's so integral and we could be preventing so many diseases if we can intercept early, but we're not doing that. And, and you know, then we get that little, a, a bit of pushback from dentistry. We'll like, you guys, you know, we don't have a lot of independence here in the U.S. either. And they're kind of like, well, you guys want your independence, but you don't get all the pressure that we get and all the expenses that it is and how little reimbursement is from insurance. But I think we need to, like, step away from these insurance companies because they're the ones who are really ultimately dictating what we can and can't do for our patients. And that's ridiculous. So I don't have the answer to how to fix the system. It's very much broken. I would love to be part of the solution and help figure it out. But unfortunately, you know, ADA doesn't look good in this situation because it just looks like they're again about the money and preserving what they have. Mm-hmm. Have you come across much, um, like in your research, are you looking at how health insurance affects any of this or... Not at this point. It is an avenue we've considered going down. So what I've done to date is looking at the incorporation of this research into policy. So that was the first phase, which obviously the findings were it wasn't incorporated very much at all. Um, And then we did a citation analysis, which being the geek that I am was quite interesting. So you actually analyze the references of the policies. And so we found that policymakers were getting 67% of their data from other policies and government documents. So not from research and things like that. So then the um, phase I'm in now is how can researchers then break into that cycle? If they're reusing a lot of the same material, then they're not necessarily incorporating new research. So I've been interviewing policymakers, and that's probably been one of the most interesting data collection phases. Um, and oral health policymakers, you know, obviously know the research and know that it's connected. Um, and there seems to be a lot of assumption that everybody knows this knowledge and everybody knows that oral health is related. And then you talk to chronic disease policymakers and there's a little bit of knowledge in some areas if they're specialized, but I've literally had a few say to me, oh, I think maybe now that you say it, I think I've heard heart disease can affect your gums or something like that. Like literally no idea. And 
Yeah. (laughs) So that's where now talking to policymakers about how they develop policy, we want to better inform oral health researchers how they can get their research into policy and to policymakers. Um, And I will admit, I probably entered this research a little naively thinking, oh, if we can just identify these pathways, then researchers can share their research and then it will, you know, translate into policy. But there's a lot of... um, I guess the politics of policy. So the government of the day obviously mandates how policy is made. Um, for example, the World Health Organization did the um, global plan for non-communicable diseases. And that then dictates, because all Australia signed on to that plan, so that then dictates what policies we incorporate. Um, so that's where I guess my research has really changed to a systems thinking approach and looking at everything that does affect it. So we're looking at doing an international phase, looking at um, um, researching insurance and things like that now. And do you think some of these issues come from the fact that in that base learning, like when they're doing their foundation degrees before these people go off and, and, you know, and do PhDs and become policymakers and do things, is that in, you know, when people are learning to be a cardiologist or learning all this, they're not doing that integrated learning and we're not teaching about that at that base level and because we don't do that integrated base level learning, it it then never builds on. Do you think that's some of the, the issues? A hundred percent, because it's interesting. One of the questions I've been asking policymakers is, do you know of these links and where did you first learn of it? Every single oral health policymaker who's a clinician has said from university, they're like, I've always known it, I just learned it in university. Whereas chronic disease policymakers, because they come from such varied backgrounds and some, you know, have public health backgrounds and things like that. I have not had one person say from university. It's usually from advocacy. And so I think if that knowledge was incorporated into university and into um, courses, that would make a world of difference. Because I definitely think... Oh, sorry, you go, Melissa. I was going to say, like, if we could be studying together in university and working collaboratively, then that foundation would be so ingrained in the next generation of clinicians who then might become researchers and then, you know... So it's, it, it would just be so nice to see a change in that, but it's hard. I know here it's hard to integrate change in um, the school setting or in the university settings because it, t- it just takes such a long time for it to like get recognized. Like, you know, Tabitha and I always talk about implant maintenance and implant dentistry and dental hygiene. Imp- dental implants have been around since the 1950s. We still have like no curriculum in our hygiene programs about it. It's ridiculous. So, and we can't even integrate dental hygiene and dentistry together here in the U.S. <laughs> and learn together in that. So, I mean, it's a tall order, but it really, like, we need to start changing this. Exactly. Yeah, we have so to somewhere. Yeah, I definitely see it in clinical practice because, you know, you might have a patient come in and and they tell you that they've started chemo or they've started this, or they've started that. And you're like, did, did the specialist talk to you about getting an oral health check first before starting or, you know, you know, did you get a, a dental clearance before you're going to start the radiation? You know, because it's really important that we maybe take care of some of these things before you start this. No, no. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of patients seeing a cardiologist, I say to them, well, what did they talk to you about with your oral health? And they look at me like, why would the cardiologist talk to me about my oral health? Like, and you're like, well, all right, I'll talk to you and I'll write a letter to the cardiologist. But yeah, you know, a lot of the time it's us 
really making in, in clinical practice, it's dentists and dental hygienists and OHTs talking about the links, but it's not necessarily the specialists that they're seeing recommending that they come or um, wanting to work collaboratively with us. And I don't think it's that they don't want to. I actually just don't think that they realise we should. <laughs> a lot of the time, like that, that, that just not being aware of it because, you know, like I've got friends who are medical doctors and they said that, their oral health education was under one hour in their whole degree. Wow. wow. And if you think about it, if you think about too, like think about a medical practitioner in whatever specialty, if they're seeing patients all day, every day, we know how harried our lives and schedules are during that. And if that's their every day of the week, do they have the time to like do like dig into that research outside? I know we're all committed to being life not lifelong learners and such, but if they're a cardiologist, are they going to pick up something that's like connected to elevating their cardiology specialty, or are they going to read something like, oh, I didn't realize that we're all, you know, like it, it's like the importance of what they're going to choose to do. So I feel like for us, it's like we have to really drive that messaging and make those connections and reach out to those specialists and educate them. And I feel like dental hygienists often just because of how we're kind of pigeonholed within our industry, we're often so afraid to say, well, I'm not a doctor, so I can't tell a doctor that this is a connection, even though we know we're the specialists here. We know so much more than they do about it. So if one thing like Tabitha and I want to achieve with this podcast is to empower our, our colleagues' voices and know that you are the specialist in oral health disease prevention and it open your mouth and say, hey, doctor, I'm sure you're aware of this connection, but let me just give you some education. Let me just share with you what I educate our shared patient on mm-hmm. and, and, you know, help them understand it because it's, they don't, they just don't know. And that. It's again, it's just, it's not that anything's wrong with what they're doing. It's we're, time is a commodity for all of us and we just have to pick and choose. So be that person that shares that information. You can change the trajectory of that person's practice and the patients that they touch. And that's how it makes your reach so much bigger as a healthcare provider. Yeah, I can't count the number of times I've had patients come in after heart surgery or brain surgery or hip and knee replacements. And I'm like, did your, dent- did your doctor tell you that you needed an antibiotic cover? They're like, no, they never said anything. And I'm always like, I just want to call and check. And I call them and I reckon eight times out of 10, it's like, oh, yeah, they need antibiotics. And the patient's like all of a sudden, like, how did you know that? And why didn't my doctor tell me that? And things like that. And sometimes, you know, that's a good way of opening up that conversation. And it does kind of help them almost trust you a little bit more. Yeah. I think the opposite probably is sometimes too. Like I've had patients come in and they've had their hip replacement like six years ago. And they're like, oh, so like I got some more antibiotics off my doctor. And I'm like, what? Like, it's fine. You don't need it anymore. And they're like, no, they said I need it for life. And I'm like, no, that's not the current evidence. (laughs) And so it's about staying relevant on both sides or even knowing. But I agree with you. They're very rarely talked to them about when they've had a joint replacement about what prophylactic care they will need and and how it works. And, um, you know, we need to kind of be, you know, I think it's interesting when you have a cardiologist or you have a diabetes specialist come and speak at our conferences. Like, it's really interesting to learn something off them. They kind of need to start inviting some dental people to their conferences and and just giving them a little bit of, you know, basic information like you should tell your patient to come in. <laughs> like, it's really important. Right, right. You know, or even just IVF specialists. Like, I've met so many women in the chair who are having perio treatment. And having IVF at the same time. And I'm like, you need to get control of this perio. Like, this is really important. And then she's like, oh, no one spoke to me about this at the IVF clinic. 
And I'm like, it's really important for the pregnancy that you've got this perio under control. We've got this inflammation under control. You're already a high-risk pregnancy. We don't need to add in perio to this as well. And, you know, a lot of the times they just have no, no one's ever talked to them about that in that journey. And we've researched too the link of infertility and active periodontal disease. So like we know that that's also, and, and I don't know how it is for you guys in Australia, but IVF is extremely expensive here. And to have to go through it and have it fail because of your mouth, that being the impacting, you know, like that's crazy. That's something that's so treatable. Yeah. So what do you think has been the most shocking thing that the thing that's shocked you the most in your research, like that you've gone, Oh God. <laughs> Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably in my research with policymakers, one of the things that I have found is that we know policies are effective, an effective way of instigating change, but just because a policy is written doesn't mean anything's going to happen. And the thing that a lot of policymakers have said to me is that there is a lack of people to actually implement policy and there's a lack of funding for policies. So they'll create, you know, these beautiful policies that these beautiful programs and they have evidence to say it works. And then once the pilot's done or once, um, you know, that policy's kind of expired, it just falls to the wayside and, nothing gets happened and it's purely because there's not people taking responsibility to implement these policies and when you say there's a lack of people is that mainly funding or is it a combination of funding and something else it's a combination so a combination of funding obviously to pay people but then also in some areas the workforce to complete those yeah. so like one um, area that we see that a lot in is aged care there's not enough, you know, workers to carry out the oral health side of things. And, you know, we know they're stressed for time and COVID's made everything harder. <laughs> um, and so that's one area that a lot of um, aged care policymakers have, have shared. Um, and it's really disappointing, I guess, too, because we know that 10 to 15% of cognitive impairment cases will progress to dementia, right? And so if you're able to slow down that progression you give those people more time with their loved ones and more time you know to live the life that they exactly quality of life and and that's what this is about at the end of the day is you know improving people's quality of life um and the other thing that we know from that too is lower socioeconomic groups and priority populations are at higher risk of poor oral health, but they're also at higher risk of chronic disease. And these two things are exasperating each other. And so they get caught in this cycle and it's really hard to break that cycle. And that's where I guess some of these programs, if they could be implemented and they did have the longevity and the funding and the people to commit, then we could see lasting change. Because um, it's really hard if, you know, there's a great, great program for a year. We know with perio, you can start to get things under control. But if treatment stops, likely those things are going to go back to how they were. So it's interesting, too, because have you found in your research, Kelsey, that when when these programs are initiated, the expense of them is still less than the impact of all of the chronic disease that we're treating, right? So like, that's the funny thing about this is that even though, yes, it costs money to implement these programs and pay, you know, dental professionals to be able to provide care for these patient populations, it still costs less 
then treating them for their diabetes, their heart disease, their stroke, like all of the dementia, all of those things. So it's like, it's out of whack. Am I wrong there? No, you're hundred percent correct. And one of the reasons I chose cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cognitive impairment was because of the economic impact. So we know that by 2030, heart disease will cost the world $1,044 billion, diabetes, 2.2 trillion, and cognitive impairment, $604 billion. So that's on a global scale by 2030. So you think about implementing these programs and preventing some of these diseases from progressing and the hospitalizations and everything that go with it. Like we're talking, you know, trillions of dollars, like a huge amount of money here. And so you're right, implementing those programs in the long term would be cheaper. But sometimes too, it's about getting instant results and votes and, you know, those kind of things, unfortunately. Oh, God, it's like, so frustrating. Like, it's exciting. And I want to like, scream it from the rooftop but I also want to pull my hair out by the roots at the same time because it's just like it's just so frustrating we're over here yelling like pay attention to us we like and that's what makes dental hygiene so special like we have such a huge impact on our patients lives and it's not just about like making their teeth bright and shiny and having Mm -hmm. a nice smile it's so much deeper than that no pun intended um (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting because we recently had a, um, in Australia a Royal Commission into Aged Care and a lot of people in the oral health um, community worked really hard on um, submissions to that to have some changes in aged care to oral health and it it didn't happen, which is really, really sad. Like, um, And, you know, why do you think, do you think it just came down to funding, Kelsey, that we didn't see? that or do you think policymakers didn't understand the importance of because it was pretty atrocious Melissa what they had to fix like it wasn't just oral health is the issue like aged care facilities were at a very low standard in a lot of areas and there's lots of changes so I understand it wasn't it's a big problem that they have it is look I think it it has to do more with the government and the funding policymakers um as much as they do have some influence, they're not the ones who finalize these policies. And they're often told, this is the policy we need, you know, create this policy. So as much as there's um, some autonomy to choose what's in that policy, a lot of it from what they've told me is dictated to them. And so you know, I've talked to some policymakers and they're like, at the end of the day, we're here to help people. At the end of the day, we're here to improve populations. And they're as frustrated as we are because they know it's not yeah. getting done. Um, the interesting thing about the Royal Commission into Aged Care, um, I 100% agree with what you said, Tabitha, is I had one policymaker who works in um, older people's mental health and dementia. And she said to me that that's actually what kind of highlighted her to the fact that that oral health affects aged care and cognitive impairment and dementia. Um, so there's been some advocacy around that that's highlighted the issue, but in the same token, we obviously don't want to wait for that to translate because in the interim year, you know, it's costing people time and their lives and things like that. Um, but in some ways, I guess it's improved the advocacy. Um, but yeah, I just think it comes down to government and funding from what... But I suppose 
we have to realise as well is that, yes, we need to improve oral health and overall aged care, but we need to work at the bottom and make sure that they didn't turn up to the aged care facility with a terrible mouth to begin with. You know, it would be nice mm -hmm. if, you know, we're kind of it, it, aged care and the way we do that is very a reactive model and we need it, but, it, you know, it would be very good if we're doing a preventative model where we started earlier and, and we didn't have people getting to aged care facilities in a mess. Um, and, you know, we need to be able to maintain what they have because, you know, this is something that we've talked about a lot. The global in dental implant market is on a skyrocketing projection. Um, full mouth rehabs are massive. Um, I don't work in a practice that does them nonstop, but I actually worked in a full mouth rehab practice for several years and we're placing them all day, every day. Wow. These people are going to go into aged care facilities with appliances that, is catastrophic when not maintained meticulously and when I was working in this clinic I'm just going all the time I'm freaking out I'm freaking out what's going to happen with these patients what's going to happen with these patients and I end all of my implant presentations with a picture of the terminator at an aged care facility <laughs> and I say I don't know the answer to this but we've got to start the conversation mm-hmm like this, like I don't know. The, I don't know. The, I said I do know the answer. You have a hygienist or an OHT in every single aged care facility, but that's not going to happen overnight, is it? So we've got to start the conversations. But you know, it would be better if we didn't have patients needing full mouth implant rehabs. Yeah, that would be the better solution, not to need them. We failed them already. If they've gotten there, yeah. right? Dentistry has already failed them. Yeah. And implant is fixing failure <laughs> yeah yeah I mean there's a very small percentage of people who are born with a genetic issue and that's why we went that road but outside of that that I yeah. mean that's tiny in comparison and and I really hate the way it's being advertised here in the U.S. like there's I've been at the gym on the treadmill and a company that shall remain nameless commercial comes on about how it's an easy solution to literally like rip all your teeth out and get these implants in a day and I'm like throwing up in my mouth watching it because it's like, we're not addressing, we're, we're doing that again, that instant gratification, Kelsey, that you, you mentioned earlier, like we need an instant result. And that's not, yes, we have a solution. And yes, it's amazing. However, we're, we're not really giving them enough information to let them understand the gravity of this decision that they're making. And this, it's a huge investment here in the States. You can't do that without it costing close to a hundred thousand oh. dollars. Wow. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> it's it's yeah. generally. I mean, I haven't researched it in a bit, but it's usually about thirty thousand an arch. So if somebody's yeah. doing full mouth, so yeah, I'm I'm exaggerating, not a hundred thousand, but sixty thousand dollars is a big chunk of change. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap. Oh yeah, look, we had patients that were um, spending their superannuation or um, you know taking loans to oh. do full mouth. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I see these issues. Like, I don't know how aged care facilities are going to cope with, you know, as it is coping with dentures and partial teeth, they're struggling. And when complex implant dentistry and bridges and all these other things, as they grow in popularity and those people age, start coming into an aged care facility without having a system in place, I think we're going to see major, major major problems you know because we already meet aged care facilities where patients can't get their dentures out because they haven't taken it out for a long time and now they're stuck and you know we see terrible things like that 
when we start seeing all these complex mouths, I think, yeah, it, it's it's going to be really difficult. And I, I don't know all the solutions, but I worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I think it's great that hygienists in Australia are getting a bit more independence because there does seem to be a bit of a push. I don't know if you've noticed that, Tabitha, to get them into aged care. And I think, you know, there are, you know, these policies that, you know, want to get hygienists into other areas. And I think it would be a really great way of trying to implement them doing it that way. And there's probably a few hurdles to still get over. But yeah. I think what was really disappointing in the... Um, uh, commission, the Royal Commission was one of the things they put forward was a like a $1,500 like Medicare kind of voucher for dental for aged care and it didn't get approved and that would have made it really good because a lot of the time the mobile dentistries that are going into aged care facilities because they can't claim Medicare or DVA as hygienists or HTs because we don't have provider numbers they're only seeing the patients who can physically afford for a fee-paying service. So lucky to those people who can physically afford it. But again, the people who are there without the means to pay for it miss out again. And if we had have had some kind of Medicare um, amount that they could get each year, you know, and even $1,500, it doesn't do a lot for people with a lot of problems, but it does something, um, that I think that would have made it a lot more viable for a lot more OHTs and hygienists to be able to set up more mobile dentistry businesses and be treating these patients um they can't be seen and you know and that's what's upsetting that if you have the money you just like everything in dental if you have the money you can get it but if you don't have the money then you know we hear terrible stories of people trying to extract their own teeth or or do things because they don't have money and it must be such a desperate and horrific situation to be in Mm -hmm. like that or people that turn up you know you know these and people that turn up to emergency they're turning up their They've probably been in pain for weeks and they didn't have the money to go see someone privately and they couldn't get in at the public because you know it's a year wait <laughs> or, you know, on a good day so you know I just it must be horrible as a parent to have a kid that's in pain or as a person to be in pain yourself and be so desperate and not have anywhere to go like I find that really horrible and I think that's where we, we need to make the biggest change like people need to be able to access at least care and pain it would yeah. be better than them not get there, but we, we have to have better facilities for this. Like, it's really horrible. Yeah, 100%. And I know in dental, like, if you're in a pain, you can get seen sooner. But even that waiting list can sometimes be up to a couple of weeks. And you can imagine right. when you're in pain, it's just, you know, it's not okay. And I think the other thing, too, is, like, if you have diabetes, you're entitled in Australia to one free eye check a year. No questions asked, you get that. I'm like, I want to see that happen with oral health. Like if you have these chronic conditions, you should have, you know, ideally at least two minimum oral health checks a year and have some of these covered. And um, I just think, you know, oral health is full of so many inequalities. And I think, you know, it's that way across the world, but it's one of, you know, the worst examples of inequality. There's a great book on Because you can get... Um, podiatrist vouchers as well when you've got diabetes. This is a great book um, about the oral inequalities in the U.S. It's called Teeth. It's by Mary Otto. Um, The story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. So this book actually outlines exactly what we're discussing. Ah, in America. I'll have to grab it. That would be really, really interesting. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal book. And it was done by a journalist, not even a dental professional. Mary Otto's a journalist. And she 
I don't, I, I don't recall how in her research she came up, up realized this, but um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, that's cool. I'm always so like, I love running into people who don't have a dental background and are advocating for these things. And I think amazing. in my research, I've come across like two people without a dental background that are advocating for oral health, but it always just, you know, makes me feel warm inside. I'm like, there's other people that get this and there's other people that see this. Cause sometimes I think we can feel like, you know, we're always going on about the same thing, but Right. And it's amazing too. Like if you think about, you know, what Tabitha was just saying, you know, prevention is so huge and like working in private practice and doing oral hygiene instruction for patients who can afford this care, you know, cause again, having dental cares and oral health is like a luxury still, which is ridiculous, but I'm teaching these people oral hygiene instructions. And they're saying to me, I've never, I'm 40 years old and I've been brushing my teeth wrong my whole life. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and these are the people that get the care. These are the people that can afford the care. So could you imagine the impact we would have if like, we should be literally everywhere teeth are right. Like we can, and, and, and the education of, you know, parents that they just, if, if they're dental illiterate, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but if they are, that's what they pass on to their children and it just perpetuates the cycle. So why are we not in schools with school nurses, like have an office next door or even share an office and be doing oral hygiene education for every student every day? Like, you know, we can have sealant programs in the school. We can have so many initiatives in the school and we can just take this next generation and, possibly just like how many things can we reduce the risk for right like it's I know I'm getting turned up right now but because it's so simple it's like so simple but we're being so stupid about it yeah and I think it's so important not to make assumptions like you know how you're saying people you know have been brushing their teeth wrong their whole life I remember one of my early days in public health I had um, an asylum seeker patient in my chair so we're working with an interpreter and I had the toothbrush and I was doing the whole thing and showing them how to brush their teeth and all of that and you know you know you do a good job and you feel good about yourself and then I was like do you have any questions and he's like what's a toothbrush and I just thought then I was like, oh, my gosh, I have missed the point. Like, you know, like you just assume that everybody has the same knowledge about things. But, you know, especially the world that we live in today, people don't come from the same backgrounds and they don't come from, you know, these middle class families that grew up going to the dentist. Um, and I think, you know, we have to, you know, not make assumptions with that. I agree 100%. And I also think... Um, We've got really high health, oral health literacy, so we have to remember that it is really high. Um, and what you grow up with, no matter what it is, is what you think is normal. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like the way my mum makes spaghetti is the way to make spaghetti, okay? <laughs> you know, because that's the way, you know, you go to someone else's house, you're like, what have you done? Like, that's not spaghetti. You know, you get used to the way you do things. So, it, and especially as a kid, you grow up and that's all you learn about. Like I had... um. Uh, when I worked on Macquarie Street in Sydney in a private practice, all my patients were quite affluent and I had one and he is very high up in politics and he brought his five-year-old in and I was like, mm, there's some decay here. And he goes, oh, so every night at midnight he gets up and we have some warm milk and honey. And I was like, what? Like, and in my head I'm thinking, you give him honey every night at midnight? He's five and a half, like in my head. And But because that's what my mum did, so I've always done it for him, you know. And so it's really important that you don't then, like, make them feel like your mum's an idiot. <laughs> like, you've got to make sure that 
everyone still feels good a bit. But I'm, you know, like, I'm like, we, we need to stop this now. <laughs> like, and talking about it. But if that's what your mum did, why would you not think that's normal? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, if no one's ever told you that's not normal or that's not good for your teeth and that's what you and all your siblings did and you, that's just the norm, then that's what you're going to think is normal. So if no one told you to brush your teeth twice a day, then maybe once a week was just what everyone in their family did and that and that's just normal. So we have to remember that, yeah, they haven't been taught anything and it would seem very normal to some people to do certain things that we're horrified at, but that is just how they grew up and that's what you see every day and that's what your mum and dad did and that's what your siblings did. So it's kind of it maybe even shocking to them when you're saying you should do it twice a day. <laughs> yeah. I think we get a little jaded in private practice too about, you know, oral hygiene instructions where like, how do you not know you shouldn't be, you know, like we just get a little, cause we, number one, it's, we have so much to do and so little time to do it in. And then it's like, if, if we're getting pushback or, you know, the patient is maybe not in great shape because of their oral hygiene, we kind of take it personally. We're like, great. Now I have to work harder because you're a dirtbag. And instead of like being kind and like, okay, well, here's the problem. Let's come up with a solution. How do I get this patient engaged? How do I get this patient to do better? And then that's where the magic happens. That's when they come back in six months and their mouth is now healthy and you've reduced bleeding because you took the time to educate. We're so focused on profi, profi, profi. That's not the best use of our time with a patient. The best use of our time is how are they going to implement this at home? Because it's the consistency of what they're doing is going to make yield a higher result than what I do in that small amount of time that I'm with you. So it's, it's, again, it goes back to so many of our systems are broken. So many, um, you know, the culture in dentistry, I feel it's time for a change. And I feel like we're really on the cusp of having, like, we have so much opportunity to make that change and have it be lasting right now because our whole world has been in flux for almost two years. And it's, it's just, and we have the evidence. So I feel like it's like, like the perfect storm is upon us and it's our responsibility to help initiate this change. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it's interesting too, like when you talk about those patients that are hard to engage, they're often obviously the ones that need more time with oral hygiene instruction. But then if they have diabetes and heart disease and things on top of it, it's like you start adding all this information in and it can seem overwhelming. Yeah. And I know I've talked to other hygienists before about it. And that's one thing I would say is just start with one thing and start with something small. Like if you're really, you know, unsure about talking to your patients about diabetes, resource yourself on it, just start with that. That one thing and you'll get comfortable with it your patients will ask you questions you'll learn things and then when you're comfortable with that then move on to heart disease and things like that because I think sometimes we can get overwhelmed like we have to do everything in my one 45 minute appointment <laughs> like I, I can't get this done right so no, we've I talked a lot about like you know things we want to change and negatives that we see but what's maybe been a positive that you found from your research like what's something you thought oh well, that was a bit of a shock and that was great um I think for me, and this is just being really honest and vulnerable, I guess, is when I started interviewing policymakers, I like I was nervous because like I viewed these people as like, you know, they're in the political world and they have all this influence and things like that. And so many and basically all of them that I interviewed are so, you know, down to earth. They're willing to help. They want to be part of the research. They want to be part of the solution. Um, and obviously, you know, they work within a system. So sometimes there's barriers to that. But like I said earlier, they're 
just like, this is about improving people's health. This is about population health. How can I help you advance this research? How can, who else can I put you in touch to help you? Like at the end of the day, you know, they're wanting to improve things and they care about people as individuals. Um, and I think that was, you know, I had a few of my early interviews like that and then I just relaxed and then I look forward to them. And then, you know, we have chats about these kind of things and, you know, and I can talk about my public health experience and that's why I'm motivated. And it's similar experiences often why they're motivated as well. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. Um, so when do you think you'll be finished your research? When are we going to be reading your um, published paper? <laughs> well, I'm doing my PhD by publication. So papers are coming out as I go. Um, yes. I'm hoping to submit at the end of 2022. So just over a year. Um, so fingers crossed all things go well. <laughs> and what do you think you want to do? Like once this is finished, because obviously this is all consuming when you're in the midst of doing something this massive. Have you thought about what you want the next steps to be after that, or you're too busy in the in the eye of the storm of the PhD at the moment? <laughs> uh, no, well, I'm still working in perio, um, and then I'm also working in research health promotion. Um, so I kind of have my foot in both. I would love, I guess, to take these findings and then start working on the implementation side of things because it's great that we, you know, we find out these things and we identify the gaps, but then we need to do something about those gaps. And I think sometimes as researchers, we're just researching, researching, researching. And I think, you know, I'd like to then look at ways and avenues to start implementing some of these findings and actually improving oral health for these, you know, priority population groups. Love it. Yeah, I love that. So for our listeners at home who are working in clinical practice, what do you think is the one thing they can do to help raise awareness of um, overall health and oral health? You know, what's something that they can be doing in their clinic to make a difference? Yeah, look, there's a lot of examples in healthcare and health promotion of bottom-up approaches. So when the way... Um, healthcare and services are performed becomes such a normality that that then influences policy, that it gets filtered into policy because it's just the way things are done. Um, so I think don't end, underestimate the time you spend with patients, the education that you give to patients around their oral health and chronic disease. Um, I also think liaising with medical professionals is great. Pick up the phone and call them or send them a letter. Um, and don't be afraid to do. I know the first few times I did it, I'm like, um, um, I'm the dental hygienist. And you know what I mean? But as you get more confident in what you're doing and things like just, you know, don't be afraid to do that. And I've had some, you know, cardiologists and things say to me, oh, thanks for calling. Like, I appreciate that. And you might not get that every time. But at the end of the day, you know, what you're doing is improving the health of your patient. And that's why we're there. And so just I would just would not discount those those little things, because like I said in the beginning, we're trying to change a system and that's going to take everyone doing their part. And then two, yeah. as you um, educate patients and that becomes common knowledge, you know, then people share that information and they filter it down to their children and their siblings and, you know, those kind of things. And it just, you know, it will become the norm. I have one more question about your research, sorry. <laughs> no, have you been looking at it from an Indigenous aspect at all as well or has it just been overall or have you looked separately into Indigenous chronic health and, and policy with that? Look, I have been looking overall, but because of the higher rates of those diseases and poor oral health in Indigenous populations, obviously it does come up. 
Um, mm. And there has been a little bit more implementation in, and funding into oral health and chronic disease programs in those areas. And there are actually some policymakers, um, in, specifically in Indigenous policy, who work with chronic disease and oral health policymakers. So they're actually probably a little bit further ahead than other policymakers, just because I guess the need is so great there. They've done a little bit more research in trying to find out how can we better address this. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wondered that because I was like, because obviously we know chronic diseases are so much higher in Indigenous communities, unfortunately. And I was thinking, I'm sure it would come up a lot in the, especially, you know, when we're looking at diabetes and dialysis and kidney disease and, um, you know, it's such yeah. a problem. Yeah. So there are some programs around um, where, um, indigenous individuals who have, um, I know for sure, um, kidney disease and diabetes do get referred for oral health treatment. So there is yeah. you know, some of that, um, initiated already, which is, which is really good to see and yeah. to keep growing. <laughs> and are we keeping you in Australia at the end of your, uh, you know, are we keeping you now? Uh, do we own you now? Can we like not say you can anymore? You're Australian. <laughs> yes. So I have dual citizenship and my fiance is Australian. So I'm pretty much. You're Australian. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we do it in Australia, Melissa. If anyone's good and they come here, we just forget where they came from and you're Australian. <laughs> <laughs> we claim anyone that's good. We're like, we're owning you now. This is how it works. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. I think I might be relocating. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we like to do it here. I love Russell, it. All of them. We're like, no, we're keeping you now. <laughs> He's not a good example, but, you know, we still kept him. <laughs> when you first said that, that was the same example. I thought it was Russell Crowe. And then I'm like, that's not a good example. I can't say that. <laughs> Not Australian, you know, we claimed him as ours. Um, yeah. You know, when he was winning Oscars, he was ours. <laughs> I digress, right. as we always do. <laughs> it doesn't take no. much for us here at Disrupting Dentistry Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's really exciting what you're doing. And I think um, one of the other things why I really wanted to have you on as a guest was um, something that Melissa and I feel really passionate about is all the different roles dental hygienists can play. And you know, I love my clinical role part-time and I love being with patients, but it doesn't have to be the only role. And, you know, some people graduate and don't actually love that patient side of, of seeing patients. And there's so many different things that you can do. And I think our options really are limitless. You know, so many people think, I saw someone post in a, an American page the other day, you know, if I had my time over again, I wouldn't have done this degree because it gives me one option in life and that's it. And I actually come and I'm like, actually, I'll just list some jobs for you <laughs> because I actually think it's there's so many options and you're such a great example of something that maybe people hadn't thought about, you know, and how much we can be involved in change and how important different research is and things like that. So I just think it's great for people to hear and find out about some of the other amazing things that you can do and you're a really amazing example of, you know, doing something different to clinical and what that impact can have. And so thank you for what you're doing for people who are with chronic diseases and oral health and for our dental community. It's a huge impact and we really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for saying that. I um, really appreciate what you guys are doing for the dental industry as well and just promoting um, 
how, you know, many jobs dental hygienists can do. And I remember when I graduated from uni, I actually went through a phase for a couple of years, exactly like that thing you read on Facebook, thinking, why did I do hygiene? All I'm ever going to be able to do is one thing. And that, you know, then, you know, with experience and stuff started putting me down that path. And so I think um, it's an important message for hygienists because, you know, we're just as resourced and, um, you know, capable as, you know, any other professional. So it's a, it's a good career. And I thank you so much for having me on here as well. I've really enjoyed the time. And we'll update your um, episode to doctor at the end of next year. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love it every time a dental hygienist can put doctor in front of their name. I just want to like shove their name in front of some doctor's faces and say, look, she's a doctor. <laughs> So I think it's an awesome achievement. It's a massive effort. And, um, you know, every single hygienist that goes on and does a PhD does so much for how we're respected and seen in the community. So um, we really appreciate for what that standing does for all of us as well. You know, you're really showing of what we can achieve and where we can be. So thank you. Shout out to all those Dr. RDHs out there. We've yeah. got nothing but love for you, sisters and brothers. <laughs> no, we do. We really appreciate all of them that are doing it and all the research and or every role, no matter what you're doing in um, in dental hygiene or OHT is really important. You know, we all make a piece of the puzzle somewhere. And um, yeah, there's so many great roles. So thank you so much for being a guest tonight. We really, really appreciate it. And for staying up late and for Melissa for getting up really early. <laughs> and, um, Thanks, Chelsea. And, yeah. And happy Dental Hygiene Month, everyone. And this is our first episode of season two. Woo! Woo! We made it. Yeah. No, so thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. We're going to have to do an update after you graduate. We'll have a little like a uh, podcast celebration with you. Ah, that sounds great. Are we ready to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. We can do the update. She's now a doctor episode. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll, cry, we'll uh, break out some bubbly and celebrate with you. <laughs> no thank you very much and thank you for listening everyone and keep an eye out for the next episode as well yeah please make sure that you share on your social media outlets when you love an episode uh write us a review share with your friends subscribe so that we can keep getting the word out to all of our uh, dental professional and non-dental professional friends until next time everybody keep on disrupting Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episodes you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.